The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. Cracks widen in the OPEC Plus alliance as the UAE pushes back on a Saudi and Russian-led production agreement. The Saudi energy minister tells CNBC the country backs a supply increase, but not a bad deal. We are for increasing the production. UAE is not putting any conditions to increase the production. We think we need to do it, and we need to do it for August. All right. Asian markets trade mixed despite Friday's bumper U.S. jobs report and fresh records on Wall Street, while a private sector survey reveals a slowdown in growth in China's services activity. Ride-hailing app Didi is suspended in China as Beijing opens an investigation over data privacy just four days after the company's U.S. IPO. And Britain's fourth biggest supermarket chain, Morrison's, agrees a £6.3 billion takeover by Fortress Investment Group, triggering a potential bidding war. France's recovery in focus as CNBC asks some of the country's business and political leaders how they intend to cope with the challenges, with the Treasury's chief economist saying inflation is not the main concern. What is more problematic for our country would be to have inflation, an inflation differential with respect to other EU area countries, as the loss in competitiveness cannot be recouped. Right, so as uh, Jeff was talking about in the headlines, OPEC and its allies, I think we'll use the term allies loosely at the moment, shall we, uh, will resume talks after failing to agree on extending production heights. Saudi Arabia and the UAE are at the centre of a rare public spat after the UAE blocked a plan to raise output levels by 2 million barrels a day between August and December. So, Hadley, um, we've known for a very long time that the uh, Russians and the Saudis uh, are the two biggest players, of course, in this broader alliance now. Now, is that now threatening the fabric of OPEC itself? Good morning to you. It's an excellent question, Steve, and one which I, I would say it's beyond OPEC Plus at this point. I would say this is actually kind of trouble in the family, if you will. Perhaps we should be talking about the gulf between us. And I'm discussing, of course, the gulf between the UAE and Saudi Arabia on this very, very key point. I had the chance, as you know, to speak with His Excellency uh, Suhail al-Masrui yesterday, and he essentially had the most forceful language I think we've ever had in an interview, pushing back on the fact that the JMMC essentially was only proposing uh, one solution. And he says, you know, we need more room to negotiate. Listen in. I don't want to name uh, countries. When we did the agreement, we knew that the agreement, that UAE position in that agreement is the worst in terms of comparing our current capacity with, uh, with the level of production that goes back to 2018 that was given. But an agreement is an agreement. When we signed it, we we were we knew the sacrifice the size of that sacrifice and we have accepted it that's why we are for that agreement until it ends any new agreement but was it a bad deal in retrospect in your view for us in uae it wasn't a good deal it wasn't what wasn't a fair deal but it was a must 
deal. We had to do it, and we think it was a courageous decision by all of the member countries. Everyone sacrificed, but unfortunately, UAE sacrificed the most, comparing and or, or uh, making one third of our production idle for two years. But we did that for the sake of the uh, the uh, the group, for the sake of correcting the market, for the sake of the world economy, and we have met, we have done a lot together. Now we think that linking the extension of the agreement for a reference that goes back to 2018 and for a period that starts from 2022 is just not realistic because this is four years. Some of the countries have been given different references ranging from plus double digits and we've been given minus two digits. That yeah. is totally unfair. The majority of the countries have been given a, uh, a reasonable difference between their their reference and their current their maximum production capacity. UAE unfortunately uh, have accepted that deal, have sacrificed yeah. the most, but we cannot extend the agreement or make a new agreement under the same conditions. We have the sovereign right to negotiate that. Our Your Excellency, when you think about this, I mean, it's a Sunday, it's 4th of July weekend. Is this a crisis? I, I, we, I'm still hopeful that, that by, by, uh, by Monday, we will, we will segregate the two decisions. There is an urgent decision that we all agree that we need to take all of us, which is the, inc the incremental production uh, up until either end of the year or even uh, or even up until April. And we are ready to accept any level of uh, production that the market requires. That, that goes without saying. I mean, listen to that language. Totally unfair. It's our sovereign right to negotiate, calling it a bad deal for them. So basically what they've said is they're on board in terms of putting more oil on the market. That they're fine with. But the problem, of course, is better bettering the agreement for themselves. I mean, this is a country, as you know, who spent billions of dollars in spare capacity. They've also, of course, um, have a budget that they have to make. And that baseline versus production back in April of 2020, if you look at those numbers, they were taking an 18 percent hit here as 13 percent more than Saudi Arabia. And they're saying, listen, guys, we got to get a better deal. Steve. Yeah, so, I mean, there's many questions I can ask you. you I'll tell you what I'll do. I will ask you many questions. You can pick which one you think is the most interesting, if any of them. So, one, I thought Iran was supposed Hooray! to be... Iran was supposed to be the deal, uh, the problem here. No one's talking about that. It seems to be a lot closer to the centre. Two, yeah. is there any worth having OPEC yeah. anymore if this is just a, uh, basically a, a cosy deal between uh, Russia uh, and, indeed, uh, Saudi Arabia and everyone else just has to follow suit? Or three, why don't they do what they always used to do at OPEC and just, just cheat on your production? levels. <laughs> I, you, you've got to, okay, excellent. All three questions. So they can continue to cheat. That's one option. Um, and they can push them a little further down the road. I thought it was really interesting that all of this taking place on July 4th over the weekend, we heard absolutely nothing from the Biden administration. We'd heard nothing from President Biden whatsoever. And I asked Suhel Al-Wazuri as well, um, you know, are they working the phones for you behind the scenes there? Um, and he, he just wouldn't even go there at all, which I thought was interesting, considering how many conversations you and I have had over the last few years about the potential death of OPEC. Um, but in terms of what happens next, I think it's going to be really, really interesting to watch how this plays out, not just at the OPEC level, but at the bigger level as well, because this isn't just about oil production. This is about, um, you know, sovereign states. It's about 
petrodollar economies. And it's about the UAE taking a really tough stand here and pushing back. And it's frankly not something we've seen from them before. And the background to all of this is this has been part of a, a, a growing rumble, if you will, since January um, and that we've kept hearing not just from the UAE, but also from Iraq and other countries that potentially perhaps didn't feel that they could take on Saudi Arabia, the big daddy of oil, if you will. And the UAE is finally taking a stand. So we're just going to have to watch and see how this plays out. All right, Hadley, nice work. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Loving the energy on a Monday morning as well. Um, Fascinating story. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, let's move on. Um, Oh, God, an old friend of ours is back, Jeffrey. Her name is Goldilocks. Oh, God, how many times have we talked? Goldilocks is just surely an excuse for we can't think of a reason not to buy this market. We'll we'll perhaps come to that in a few moments' time because we have got a chat, so perhaps I brought you in prematurely. This is what the market's done. Uh, We are record levels on the S&P 500, record levels on the NASDAQ. And I talk about the young lady Goldilocks, although she's been around a while, uh, because because the the figures were very, very strong on the payroll. And that's what we're going to chat with Jeff about in a few moments' time. 720,000 jobs expected. 850,000 created as well. And as you can imagine, the Treasury yield picked up aggressively. Let's have a look at it. Or did I just make that up? Because I did. Look at this. We were in March, yeah? We had a 177 yield on the Treasuries. But again, that young lady, again, probably not so young, is she? She's probably about 300 years old now, isn't she? Anyway, Goldilocks has got us to 143 on the 10-year now. So all of a sudden, you people are buying the market story that jobs are being created. They're buying the market on equities, thinking that the growth store is intact, and they're buying treasuries. Okay, let's leave that one there. Let's have a look at the dollar crosses as well. Dollar, I think, had a little bit of a dip, actually, didn't it, on Friday. Dollar index was down 0.4 of 1%, up 0.4 of 1% for the week, net net as well. Uh, as I said, by the way, the Treasury yield dipped uh, 10 basis points on the week from 153 where it was a week ago. Uh, do you want to have a quick look at the Asian markets as well? I will show you these very, very briefly. Um, very benign stuff on the ASX and the Shanghai Composite. Hang Seng down 5 tenths of 1%. The Nikkei down six tenths of one percent as well, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, we're going to get into the story now. I believe you've got. Have you got a read on it first? Or? Yeah, I do have a read, but I oh. just wanted to come back on your Goldilocks because I think if we're in the realm of children's stories, then you're going to go for Moana or something? Or? No, no, no. Frozen, more, more like um, Sesame Street. And do you remember uh, one of the games they play in Sesame Street is yes. pick the odd one out? Yes. And um, the song was something about one of these things is not like the other. I remember it very well. Very visual sh- uh, quiz show. Yeah, and I think it, that's yeah. that's what you ultimately did. For but far be it from me to suggest that your presentation at the wall was akin to <laughs> a Sesame Street presentation with uh, uh, symbols and objects that represent like and unlike. But mm. you're clearly right. There is something odd about the mix of asset class price movements that we're seeing at the moment on the back of this story. And if we have inflation, then it doesn't add up that the yield should be going down. But I think that what that's testing is this idea that the bond market still knows more about what's really going on in the economy than the equity market. And bond investors, the glum lot that they are, would consistently tell you that they are the smarter group of bears rather than the equity market investors who are more bullish. And the message I think that they would convey about that 10-year note is that whatever you might believe the jobs number tells you, 
about strength in the economy, it doesn't actually tell you that we're going to have a lot more upside for equity markets and that deflation is the greater risk than inflation at this no, stage. No, I don't think we... Following on from Governor Bailey's line, that there is still structurally a problem around growth and productivity in a lot of developed Western economies. I don't think we need the read now because, I mean, we've, we've told most. But basically, I mean, it, it says something about 850,000 well, workers we, in June. We can, we, we, can, we can flesh out the read, but well, we can have the conversation as well. Well, no, but I, I, I mean, but just looking at the bits of the read, in the, the, in the yeah. read that we haven't already said as well, and it okay. said that reducing the total number of loss, jobs lost since the start of the pandemic to 15.6 million. But I have questions about whether those jobs are still right. a problem. I mean, when you look at the number of vacancies... And the number of people who are quitting and the number of people who are not actively looking for employment in the United States at the moment. There is an issue here with looking at the old pure stats, aren't they? Oh. When you have a record number of vacancies in the US economy, yeah. over 9 million jobs are sitting there waiting to be filled. And they're not all ones that require... Um, a great education, and they're not all ones that require no education. There is a vast gamut from technology jobs to burger flipping jobs to a broader hospitality to financial services to technology um, support, what have you. There are loads of jobs out, and people are still quitting. So what is going on? Is this story way more nuanced? And the other thing I was going to say is we've made this debate so far this year about inflation. Is it transient? Is it the base effects? Is it real? And, 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 and I've played my active part in that conversation as well. But maybe we can just park that and say, we don't know. There you go. How about we'll just park that and say, Look, even though some people think they definitely know, I would suggest maybe they don't because this is unprecedented historically. But maybe we just need to concentrate on a bit more what's going on in the jobs market as well. And is it actually a lot, more t a lot tighter than perhaps the headline figures say? I think we're going to apply the same argument. We don't know to the job situation because the unemployment picture, to my mind, won't clarify itself until we come through the uh, end of the furlough scheme. So is September ultimately a cliff edge for the US labour market story? And post that, do we find out in the fourth quarter of the year, actually the economy goes back to subpar trend growth rates? Because if you've still got 9 million unemployed, you've got the unemployment rate rising, even as you've got the jobs number at 850,000, you still have a problem, which is, I think, what you've described here. The question of further fiscal stimulus for the labour market now is, I think, almost resolved. You know, what we've seen the Biden administration push for is an infrastructure program that is a quarter of what they were hoping for. So something under a trillion dollars looks like it's now going to happen. But it's not clear at this stage what impact that ultimately will have on the labour market because we don't know where that money will go. But it certainly won't have the same impact as direct checks mailed out to people who have been furloughed, who now will find out whether they have a job to go back to or whether they need to go out and pick up one of those jobs that keeps being advertised in the jolts numbers. Yeah, look, I've just done uh, a search on an engine that may be the dominant one. It may not be. Um, US job shortage. I just put it in and put news in there. And there are pages and pages of evidence of people basically quitting their jobs, of employers raising salaries, of there being pandemic worker shortages as well. This is a really strange situation. Look at this EY survey here. I've, I found this. This is... In the United States, a record 4 million people quit their jobs in April. A record 4 million people mm. 
quit their jobs, including, which I find extraordinary, mm. 649,000 retail workers. They quit. Mm. They weren't sacked. They weren't furloughed. They quit. That, these are crazy numbers, considering how concerned people have been about their economic well-being during the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And who was it? We had a guest on uh, Friday, I think, when you were out, who was pointing out that now some companies have uh, gone to lengths to offer bonus incentives. And I think he cited Burger King. But we're talking about thousands of dollars worth of upfront payments to try and get staff in uh, burger chains, restaurants, uh, leisure facilities, leisure outlets. And so, as you point out, you know, there's something kind of confusing about the direction of labour in the door or out the door at this stage. And I don't think we're going to get resolution until at least the fourth quarter. And then, ultimately, that'll only be a first look. This story will not work its way out until we get well into the first half of 2022. Absolutely. And you mentioned um, Sesame Street. And, and yeah. of course, you didn't mention the, the count, the wonderful figure. I love, I love to count. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to just count yeah. a couple more numbers. Uh, Chamber of Commerce, yeah? A survey a few weeks ago, 90.5% of companies said the lack of available workers is slowing the economy in the era. 90% of companies in the American Chamber of Commerce can't find the employees they need as well. Look at this. American Hotel and Lodging Association reported that 96% of its respondents had open positions. 96% said we've got open positions and we can't fill them, but most... Uh, pay less than sitting on the couch collecting enhanced subsidies from not working. That's a journal piece as well. So basically they're saying there's a mismatch and and giving people money to sit on the couch is not a good idea, is is the tenet of the article. Uh, Meanwhile, over in China, we've got further indications that the economy is slowing. The uh, Chinese services PMI fell to 50.3 in June. That is a 14-month low. Businesses in the sector also cut staff for the first time in four months, while a sub-index of new business also declined. Sam has more on this for us. So Sam, what does this tell us, do we think, about the, the medium-term outlook then for growth in China? Good morning to you, Jeff. I think it tells us a couple of things. Firstly, some economists have said that this may be a little bit of a one-off, and that is because we did see that spike in COVID cases in the south of China, which did take a hit to consumption. Of course, this survey does look at the smaller and private firms in China, which uh, this survey uh, does look at certainly in the coastal towns. And we do know that those are... uh, typically harder hit and more sensitive and vulnerable to these sorts of lockdowns and restrictions. Obviously, that's not very good for things like karaoke bars, cinemas, restaurants and bars. So as I said, some economists saying this this is a one-off in July. We may see a bit of a spike as we do see this pent-up demand uh, coming back. But uh, other analysts have certainly suggested that this may be a sign uh, that this pent-up demand uh, perhaps is starting to peak now as we are seeing things uh, in China perhaps are starting to moderate. Certainly, we have seen China the first in, first out staging this remarkable economic recovery. Uh, But some economists say that we are perhaps seeing a little bit of a levelling out now. In terms of the breakdown of this survey, um, the sub-index for new business just held above that line, 50.5, actually the lowest since April as well. Companies also laid off workers for the first time in four months. This was largely down to that slowing demand. uh, But they also said that some companies saw workers walk off the job because of that 
spike in cases. But in saying that, it wasn't all bad, actually. Inflationary pressures, which have been squeezing these margins, uh, were said to have actually eased. Input costs slowed the most uh, since September last year. So that was good news, even as we have seen these high commodity prices and also this uh, these labour costs weighing on these companies. They also slashed their prices for the first time in 11 months to attract new business. And I think that certainly goes to underscore that this, uh, you know, pass through in terms of the PPI to the CPI so far is limited. We'll actually be getting more on that on uh, Friday. But another bright spot uh, was the new export businesses, actually, or new export business, I should say, rose uh, back into uh, positive territory. And that goes to show uh, overseas demand certainly continuing, uh, though the rate of that was still marginal. So with this data, uh, economists have certainly said that uh, they don't expect uh, policymakers, uh, certainly the central bank, the PBOC, to tighten too soon. Uh, They have been saying they are taking a flexible and targeted approach. We are likely to see that expanded, to see a much more broad-based recovery now. Uh, But certainly we know that economists have also said that this income distribution does need to be improved before we see spending coming back to pre-pandemic levels and also those jobs, which we know are a big focus for the government because, of course, if you have a job, you're more likely to spend money. Guys, back to you in London. Terrific coverage. Thanks so much, Sam, for that. We'll see you later. Coming up on the programme, China's regulator ramping up the crackdown on Didi, ordering its removal from app stores locally. We'll have more on that story when we come back. And for more on the impasse in OPEC Plus negotiations and why the UAE is opposing a deal on extending output cuts on current terms, I should say, why don't you check out the marvellous Squawk Box podcast? I'm told it's vintage, especially for Monday. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back. China's cyberspace regulator has ordered app stores in the country to remove Didi's ride-hailing app, saying the company has, quote, seriously violated laws on collecting and using personal information. Didi, which listed on the New York Stock Exchange last week, has warned the crackdown could impact its revenues, which is going to come as something of a shock, Arjun, to all those American investors who bought those ADRs at the top of the range and even bumped up the IPO to $4.4 billion. I mean, why why didn't the Chinese regulator announce this before the IPO? Well, your, your guess there is as good as mine, Jeff. We've seen, of course, this trend of regulatory action around an IPO or just after an IPO, going back to November when regulators here pulled the $34.5 billion IPO of Ant Group. And now you've seen this just shortly after uh, the DD IPO. Another two companies as well, Full Truck Alliance and Boss Japan, both listed in the US, have also been caught up in this latest regulatory, re- regulatory crackdown from China's cyberspace. 
Trump-based administration. Look, if you read the the Didi prospectus, they did highlight a, a lot of the regulatory issues that have already uh, come to fore, but also that could happen in the future and around the IPO. I was talking a lot about the regulatory risk, not just around antitrust, which of course we, we, we could see further action on, but specifically around data, just given the amount of data that technology companies are collecting here. And there's more going on, I think, in the background when you look at, when we talk about the China tech crackdown, it's not just one regulatory body. These these are many different bodies getting involved. And this one has come from the uh, Cyberspace Administration of China, very much focused on the data picture, because what you're seeing is uh, so far regulators have focused on antitrust with the massive $2.8 billion Alibaba find their focus on the financial technology or fintech regulation. We saw that with the Ant Group IPO being pulled and now it's turning to data. The government, uh, the authorities worried about the way companies are collecting data and are hoping to clean that up uh, and create effectively a a stronger footing for the digital economy going forward. Look, the Chinese uh, technology scene has really grown unencumbered for the last 10, 20 years. No regulation. Now it's got to the point where some of these companies are the biggest in the world. And so you're seeing the government step in to rein in some of this power. But I also think they're trying to do this to clean up their own uh, or get make sure these technology companies have their own houses in order as well going forward. So I think that's really the theme here. And as I mentioned, you're seeing it across different parts of the tech scene from antitrust to fintech and now through to data as well. Guys, back to you. Terrific, Arjun. Thank you so much for that. And, uh, I guess my question here would be, what redress do any American investors have at this point who bought the uh, ADS? Against who? Against... Uh, so the... The Chinese regulators were already investigating right. Didi. Uh, the, so the, was what, it the prospectus? Didi was asked about it, and Didi's response at the time, unsubstantiated speculation from unnamed sources, was Didi's response to inquiries about the antitrust probe that was already taking place before the IPO. Now obviously drive a a small minivan through that. But in legal terms, if you've just bought the American uh, depository shares in this business at the top end of the range, I think you would feel a little aggrieved and you would like to know exactly what did the company know at this point about likely redress or, you know, concerns that were being expressed by the uh, Beijing authorities and what they were likely to do as a consequence of that. I would, I, I would imagine Fair that enough. somebody may have had an inkling that there would be consequences from the antitrust investigation. What about the bankers who put the prospectus together? No, I think it's, again, it's um, it's worth asking the question, um, isn't it? No doubt there will be some American lawyers who are already licking their lips about the so possibilities. According to Reuters copy, um, well, I'm sure we can find it everywhere. But mm. Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley were the lead. Uh, bankers on the DD ride-hailing app um, IPO as well. I mean, look, the only thing I will say is, um, look look what they're being accused of doing. Uh, seriously violating laws on collecting and using personal data, well, personal information. I, I don't mean to be cynical, but is there ever a technology company out there that we don't suspect of using our personal information and storing mm. our personal information as well? I mean, how many times on this channel have we told people that 
they themselves are the greatest danger to their own personal privacy because they give so much information away to social media and to other apps as well every yeah. time we do it. When was the last time any of us actually looked at the terms and conditions on an app and didn't and read through the pages and reams of, mm. of conditionality without saying just accept? I mean, I, yeah. I know I'm for one, perhaps I'm, I'm bad at it, but I just accept the terms and just move on to the app. I mean, they all collect data on us. They all collect data. No, absolutely. And, and I think what we're getting here is a lesson in how governments are able to implement control over their own technology companies. Compare and contrast. If you operate an author authoritarian government system, I think uh, an Ant Financial was obviously the catalyst for this review of how data was being collected and stored. The government is making it clear there is only one agency in this country that is going to be allowed to have all that detailed information, and it is the government. And you will not take that information and use it for purposes that we don't agree with. And that's, I think, what they've made very clear. Um, and so as we look at the situation in the United States or in Europe, as it comes to monitoring tech companies, what kind of uh, legislation are we going to see ultimately that mirrors what's already been done in uh, China? Yeah. Maybe none. Wow, it's interesting. We'll see. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.